Welcome to Behind the Spotlight, a different kind of podcast where we have real, deep conversations with entrepreneurs and celebrity visionaries who are making their potential possible. They are certainly ahead of their time and worthy of yours. So listen as I take your favorite entrepreneurs off a pedestal and onto a bar stool right next to you. In life, it all comes down to building powerful, long-lasting relationships in a thoughtful, authentic way. You know, we all see that highlight reel of successful entrepreneurs, but I want to take you behind the spotlight and show you who they were before they figured it all out. Let's explore the sometimes torturous, but always interesting paths their lives have taken. So I'm Beth, speaker, author, entrepreneur, and a magnetic business mentor. I help entrepreneurs to strategically prepare their business and gain exposure through collaboration and media so they can make their mark on the world. I'm a huge believer in the power of potential to catapult your life forward. So join me as we explore stories of some of our favorite people leveraging their past to make their potential possible on Behind the Spotlight. On this week's episode, we have Josh Corpel. Now, I don't know about you, but I was not juggling flames on stages all across the U.S. when I was 12 years old. But he's always been a risk taker. When his friends were getting jobs right out of college, what did Josh do? He went and worked on a tall ship and sailed all around Europe, even when he got shipwrecked. Listen in for Josh's story. Josh, I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for visiting me from Key West. I'm I'm a little jealous that you're still down there. Not for long. I'm, uh, I think that uh, I'm going to go up. My sister's getting married in October. And then after that, I'm headed down to Mexico. I think I'm going to do season two of the, uh, of the show from Mexico. You're That's the amazing. First person I've, you're the first person I've told about that, actually. <laughs> uh, breaking news. Josh is moving to Mexico, so we can all go visit him there <laughs> instead of Key West. That's right. So you were saying you're going home. Where's home? Uh, up to... Well, home, home is Pittsburgh, but uh, up to Cleveland area, that's where my sister's getting married. Oh, that's so nice. And your whole family will be there. They will. They will. It's, it's going to be, it's one of those like COVID adapted weddings, you know, so it's really, really small, intimate family thing. And then we're just going to have a big blowout party sometime in the near future. I've been to a few of those. Okay. So Pitts, let's go back to Pittsburgh, Josh. Tell us a little bit about Josh growing up in Pittsburgh and how, maybe a little bit how he got to, you know, my most interest is, as you know, the big ships, but let's start at the beginning. The beginning, beginning. All right. Well, so let's see. Um, So I was a weird kid. I didn't fit in too well with people. You know, I sort of kept to myself. Um, I ended up getting really into juggling when I was like 10 or 11 years old. And my buddy, Matt, and I and our moms, basically the moms got together and hatched this whole plan. And we were like 11 at the time. So we're like, sure, yeah, yeah, why not? Uh, But Matt did all of this stage magic. And because I had all the juggling expertise, we formed this this duo called the Court Jesters. And we traveled all over the Northeast. And we did all of these magic and juggling shows for all sorts of things, like Make-A-Wish Foundation and the corn festivals and boy scout troop parties and library events and birthday party like everything uh and that was like my first my first like real introduction to uh just entertaining i guess and and you know talking in front of people and things like that well i have to give kudos to your mom to be able not only to have the foresight but you and your friend just got up and did it were you were you that kind of so it was it's innate in you that you want to be able to be in front of people like where did that come from 
I, it took a while to like get used to it. I don't know. It was um, because with the juggling in particular, like it wasn't just three balls or like handkerchiefs or something like that. I mean, I was doing flaming torches, uh, machetes, oh things God. like that, all at like 11 years old. And so it was, there was a ton of pressure. Uh, and my buddy was, you know, wasn't just like sleight of hand magic. These were big stage magic sort of things. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't is there, know. Wait, is there video? Yeah, it's all on cassette. Uh, it's all on like those little. You have to do it. Wait, you have to get it. You have to YouTube it. You have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we have like, like these high chipmunk voices, and we're just like jumping around doing magic. So cute. Oh, it was, it was a blast. We had business cards and stuff. Uh, so I did a lot of that when I was younger. That's the kind, like that. That's the sort of weird stuff that ended up doing. Yeah, but that was a start of you having that confidence to be able to challenge yourself to make, I would say, what's the right word? Like, um, not normal, but I don't want to use that word normal, like different choices in your life. Yeah. Give you that permission, maybe. 100%. It, um, you know what it really taught me was it taught me that I am the type of person innately that, that when they set their sights onto something, they pursue it until they master it. Um, I knew that from a really, really early age, like learning how to ride a unicycle, you know, I would just, I would just spend hours getting up and like falling over, getting up and falling over and like riding a little bit farther and a little bit farther every single time. But, um, man, I spent, I spent weeks and weeks pursuing this and I, I didn't give up. Same thing with the juggling and then magic and then, you know, all sorts of other things in my life. But, from that early on age, I realized that that's the kind of person that I was. And if I couldn't get it, if I couldn't master it, I would stick with it until I, until I nailed it. That's amazing. And that's amazing to understand that at such a young age. But as you got old, I, I'm still on like, I think I need to see this in video. Like, this is, <laughs> like I really, I do it. Yeah. Like, I want to give your mom a hug, like to, to be able to like, okay, okay, Josh, go ahead. This is what you're doing. And to be able to support you on that. But how did oh, that man. manifest for you, like, as you got older? Uh, well, so let's see what happened. Like, I mean, certainly speaking in front of a crowd was a little bit easier. I'm still nervous when I do that. Um, but that really came about where I saw the benefits of that was, uh, was during the, the tall ship captain stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Because every single time that you have a, an event where you bring people on the boat, you're just about ready to drop the lines and shove off and sail away, you have to give this safety speech. You have to get, make everybody comfortable, give them a, you know, a once over about where the bathrooms are and where they can and can't go and all that stuff. Just introduce them to the boat, all the safety stuff. And you can make it as funny or as dry as you want. And uh, I think that all, I channeled a lot of my court jesters days back there <laughs> exactly. when I was giving this safety speech and making people laugh and getting them, you know, nice and warmed up and stuff like that. That really, that really helped. I hope one day I get to be on one of your ships or maybe I, if you were ever in Newport, I definitely was on one of those ships and I love those, the guys that are on them, you know, doing that kind of thing. But let's go back a little bit because you did go to college. I did. I went, uh, well, even before that, I, um, in high school, I lived in South America for a year. So I spent wow. one year, full year, uh, in Chile with a host family that did not speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. So really, really early on, like when I was 16, they, my family just kind of shipped me down there lovingly, 
but like, Wait, like what year they was this? down there 96 okay so just so we can understand this yeah. is really before internet maybe you had a cell phone probably oh, yeah. not no way no way so it was all it was all pre-internet stuff email okay. was just just barely a thing and i remember my host dad would go to the school that I was attending because he was the principal of this school that I was attending and he would print out the emails. We didn't even have a computer at our home that we could like see the emails. There was one right. computer that was connected to the internet. It was at the school. He had to go print out these emails and then take them to me so that I can see them. Uh, but that was like really, really early on. So I spent an entire year with, with this amazing family in Quilpue, um in Chile and learn how to speak Spanish, Chilean Spanish. It was a massive like period of growth when you're like 16, 17. Yeah. Um, learning how to adapt, you know, like, like there's a lot of uncertainty. The first couple of months I got really, really sick with mono and that was like devastating because you get quarantined, you know, it's contagious and then, then they don't really have that down there. So they didn't know what to do with me. And the only things that are on television are Spanish telenovelas and you can't speak the language. And yeah, it was just, it was like a really long couple of months. But once I got over that uh, and you, and you get, you get a sense, it starts to feel like home, right? You get a handle on the language. You start to uh, get over the embarrassment of looking like an idiot because they just, they just literally throw you into the school system. There is no spent like they do today when they're like, Oh, study abroad in college. And you go to Spain or something and they just put you into a classroom with an English speaking teacher mm -hmm. and other English speaking students. Like what the hell is that? So this wasn't like that. Kinder, at all. Gentler yeah. No, you, people need <laughs> to be different. like, people need to be just like immersed. butt kicked and immersed in where they say, all right, Josh, like we'll see you in nine months or something like that. And you just have to fend for yourself. And in, in, in retrospect, I'm so glad that that happened the way that it did. Cause that's how I really learned how to be resourceful and, uh, and, and yeah, and make friends, even though you couldn't really communicate with them and stuff <laughs> like that. It was just, yeah. But your mom gave you such a gift. She was like, okay, like not only are you going to get up in front of people, now you're going to live somewhere else. And you didn't go home when you were sick, which is to me, I would have been like, I'm out of here. No way. That was, I mean, they, they asked me if I wanted to multiple times. Right. Uh, and every time I said, no, like I can tough this out. And I did. And I'm so glad that I did because once you leave, you can't come back like visa restrictions and stuff like you're done. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, and my mom was a proponent of it, but she, she wasn't the driving force. My dad was really the driving force of all of that. Uh, so yeah, but that's, so I spent a year there, came back, finished my last year of high school, and then uh, went to college, Boston, um, uh, Denison University in Ohio, if anybody knows, it's in Granville, Ohio, it's mm -hmm. like little, little liberal arts college, um, majored in Spanish, did a, you know, did a semester overseas in, in Spain, so I really can attest to the fact that it was totally different, the University <laughs> of Valencia, right? It was like a cakewalk. Um, oh, sure. So that all, you know, that all happened. And uh, yeah, and so after all of that, like, um, you just learn how to deal with a lot of that stuff. I came back, I finished out my, uh, my whole degree, and then, um, then went to work on tall ships, like defied everybody. Everybody thought that I was going to go get a job. I was like, what are you going to do with a Spanish degree? All right, well, maybe you'll go work at the UN or start to translate, right. you know, stuff. Right. Yeah, teach, whatever. Nope. 
I was like, I'm dropping everything. I'm packing a sea bag and I'm volunteering on this pirate ship for three months. Were you a boat? Like, were you, you were in Pittsburgh. It's not like there's no ocean there. No, nope. I, uh, I, I knew from the traveling, right, that I loved the water, but I'd right. never done anything like this. But, you know, you make those decisions when you're younger. Um, you don't think about the logistics. You're like, what do I feel like I want to do with my life? Take a chance and do it. And that's what I did. And it was the best decision, I think, that I made in, like, all of my 20s, uh, <laughs> that one thing. You would not I, – I, I'm going to contest you on that because not a lot of people – I don't believe that a lot of people make those kind of decisions or make, take those kind of chances because they weren't put in positions or they weren't taught that that's okay to do. Growing up, it was, you, got, you did really well in high school, you did really well in college, you got a really good job and you got married. You didn't go off to a different state, much less a different country, much less a tall ship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. Um, and you, you have to wonder like whether or not it's because people are inherently afraid of doing stuff like that, mm -hmm. like making those decisions, or they just don't know that those opportunities exist. Um, I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. The tall ship thing, I certainly didn't really know that that whole world existed. I thought it was just going to be like a couple of months and I was going to have a great time. It was going to buy me some time to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life. But that, it ended up introducing me to a world that I didn't even know really was out there and that I loved. And, uh, and that sent me down this path for the next, man, over the next like six, seven years of just um, you know, eventually getting my captain's license, sailing all over the world, having all kinds of crazy experiences out at sea. Uh, yeah. So does yeah. Tall, what, tell us all like what I, I know, but what does tall ships mean? Like, I think people are going to think of like below deck, that TV show on Bravo, like <laughs> these are sailing ships. So it's very different. First of all, for that. It is. It's like, it isn't, it's not like below. It's like a, um, well, it's kind of a cross between below deck and survivor. Um, <laughs> Right, because it's a lot scruffier. Uh, we right. carry around knives and spikes on our hip. Um, you run around barefoot. You're climbing up on top of the masts, and you know, and, and you're climbing out onto these yards and furling sail together. And I mean, you're really honestly operating these ships in the same manner that they did back in the 1800s, right? So uh, that's what the benefit is. It's a very physical job. It's a situation where you're living in very stressful conditions, very small spaces. You have to get along with people. You have to learn how to adapt. Uh, it's not for everybody, for sure. But the benefits of that life have been incredible, right? I've just, I've been able to take all of the lessons that I've learned on in those experiences and apply them to other places in my life, like in business and entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and creating all of these solutions. Uh, and they have served me so well. So, so uh, yeah, it was it was a hell of a it was a hell of a of an experience. Well, can you give us a story? Like, do you have like you were boarded by pirates or oh, like why yeah, did yeah. you have the spikes yeah. and the knife? Like, I, like a good story, John. Like a good sales story. Okay, okay, love that. Well, so to answer your question about the knife and spike, right? Um, you never know when you're gonna have to like cut things. Okay. Oh. Uh, okay. So that's what the knife's for. This is a traditional tool on tall ships to. It really does everything, but you jam it into knots that are really bound oh, up and it helps you break the back of knots and untie things, right? And it has like a billion other uses, but, uh, but that's, that's really what it's for. And I'll give, you, I'll give you a little bit of a story. So let's see. Um, we were sailing on the Pride of Baltimore 2, which is this 150-foot 
two-masted square topsail schooner. It's this big wooden ship out of the out of Baltimore, Maryland. Beautiful, beautiful ship. And we sailed that thing across the Atlantic over to Europe. And then we spent the next couple of months battling all kinds of weather in the North Sea and Baltic Sea. We sailed all over. We were in Copenhagen. We were in we were in all of the Scandinavian countries. We were racing between Germany and Ireland and England and stuff. And finally, we were just, you know, after months of this, it sounds great, but we just got beaten up. The weather there was, um, was rough most of the time. And, uh, and so we're looking forward to sailing down around the, um, the Iberian Peninsula, basically around like down past France and then around Spain and Portugal and into the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar, right? Well, we were racing from Torquay, England to Santander, Spain, which is essentially the southernmost coast of England, right, to the northern coast of Spain. And we were racing all these other big tall ships from all over the world, right? And we were about 80 miles off the coast of France when, um, and we're sailing, we're sailing into the wind. So if anybody, if you're familiar with how, how sailing like works, you can sail, you can't sail directly into the wind, but at an angle to it. And we were sailing at an angle to it. And so that puts a lot of stress on the boat itself. And, uh, and there was so much stress that one of the key pieces of rigging that we had up forward in the boat, right, that held a lot of the rig up, um, it ended up failing, right? A web essentially failed. The whole piece blew up. That weakened the boat in one particular area. And because of the weak spot, the next time that we crashed into a wave and came back up, it didn't have any support, all of these wooden pieces that needed to be supported, the support wasn't there. And so they cracked off and just flew away, right? Uh, with three massive sails set, it just carried away to port, right? To the left side of the boat. And that led to a chain reaction that caused the boat to maneuver in a weird way. It backed a square topsail that we had. It Then that pressure caused the foremast, right? Which is like, I don't know, probably two and a half, three feet in diameter of old hardwood, like the strongest possible wood. Mm -hmm. It just cracked right at deck level and it crashed down on top of us. That hit the main mist, which then cracked that <gasps> down on top of us. And we're talking like, you know, a massive, complete yes. and utter rig failure, uh, you know, 80 miles off the, off the coast in the Bay of Biscay, off the coast of France. And, and it was chaos it was absolute chaos for a couple of minutes and no one knew there was screaming involved. No one got hurt. I almost jumped overboard because as you know, you're watching this mast like fall towards you, but the boat is rocking. So you don't know exactly where it's going to fall. And I was real close to the edge of the boat and I almost jumped into the water to get away from this mast as it came down. And in retrospect, I am really, really glad that I did not jump because the water at that time was really cold and the boat was sailing at like six, seven knots. And I thought you would have been lost. Oh yeah. It, it would have just, the boat would have sailed away, even though there were no more, you know, sails up, it would have just taken a while for the boat to stop. And, uh, and I probably never would have been recovered. Right. Yeah. So anyway, didn't die. No one good. really got hurt. <laughs> That's and, good. uh, and we ended up, trying to pull all of this stuff uh, onto the boat as best we could. We secured it all. We started up the, the, this boat had like two big diesel engines, right? To get in and out of like tight ports and stuff. And we fired those up 
and we just went straight into France, um, into this little town called Saint-Nazaire, which is on the northwestern coast of France where Nantes is. It's like the Loire River comes out and feeds out. Saint-Nazaire is right there. Uh, and yeah, and we just ended up um, living in France for months as we totally recovered everything. We categorized it all. We took it all off the ship and we rebuilt the rig from the ground up. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was an wow. interesting phone call that I had to send <laughs> to my mom once we got into France. Like, hey, remember, uh, I'm not dead, but we definitely got shipwrecked in France and I'm going to be here for a while. So it was, you know, that kind of thing. That's crazy. That's like a yeah. movie. That's like one of those, like, you know, Paul Newman movies. <laughs> yeah. Everything comes down on it. We, That's amazing. We won, we won all kinds of crazy awards in the sailing community for all the seamanship and stuff that happened and how we handled the situation. And uh, wow. there were articles written about it and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, yeah, it was a nuts time. Yeah, that sounds it. And, and, and again, you didn't just come home, which you could have. You've been like, I'm done with this. I'm going to go back to the U.S. and figure out what's my next step. But you were like, I'm going to stay here and push it out. Yeah, we stayed. Oh, I stayed. Um, I stayed for uh, maybe three months and then and then got to a point where uh, I needed to change some stuff. So I ended up coming back, got like a temp job for a couple of weeks during the holiday season just to make ends meet. And then uh, and then and then actually came to Key West now that I think about it. That was my next stop. So I, I took a bus down from Pittsburgh and I came to Key West and that was the first time that I started working on the tall ships down here. And okay. that is what eventually led me to my first captain's job. Uh, so yeah, it all just kind of fits together, you know, in retrospect, all the dots connect. Yes, they, they do all connect. They take, they take us everywhere, exactly. Okay, so then you're a captain of a tall ship, but then didn't you go back to school? I did. I quit everything. Like after after I did the captain's thing for a while, I uh, I quit it all. And uh, my girlfriend at the time and I booked a plane ticket to India, and we went to New Delhi. I bought a motorcycle in New Delhi, and uh, we spent the next two months riding around the Himalayas by ourselves uh, all the way to Tibet and then back. And uh, it was a, like that time that I was kind of figuring things out and, mm -hmm. and just deciding what I wanted to do with my life. I kind of landed on the idea of engineering and I found an amazing program at Boston University that, that would help me facilitate that. So I ended up going through this crazy application process and all sorts of stuff, jumping through amazing hoops just to get, just to get the opportunity to apply. And uh, then, yeah, it was incredible. It was like one of those programs that was just really, really competitive but I got it and I spent the next man, like three and a half years at Boston university uh, doing uh, studying mechanical engineering, got a master's in mechanical engineering. It did all kinds of crazy projects. And then I started working for the entertainment industry and designing all kinds of weird things for like Justin Timberlake and stuff. Sometimes when you tell me stories, I'm like speechless because your life is a little movie-ish. I think you know that, you know, <laughs> yeah, going with a girlfriend a to India for two months and driving around and, you know, mine's like, where am I sleeping? Where am I going in the bathroom? How am I getting water? Where am I like, you know, I like a little poshiness, obviously that, that wasn't like that. But also that, you know, Boston, the school in Boston was like, this is not my normal applicant. This is, you know, he doesn't, he didn't come out of wherever, you know, whatever school you were supposed to come out of. 
but you had such immense life experience and did so much. Was there any barrier to really connect with the other people in the program? Because you had such a different experience than most of them probably had. Yeah, like the life experience helped because, you know, what I found is that engineering is, is really all about communication. Anybody can do the math, um, but what, what well. separates a good engineer from, <laughs> well, yeah, like not not, I guess not everybody, but <laughs> not most everybody. people can do the math. It's uh, what separates good engineers from great engineers are their communication skills and, uh, and how they can read a room. Because most engineering in real life, there's no back of the book right or wrong answer. Like you have to argue why your answer is right. And it's more like being a lawyer in a sense than it is an engineer um, when, you're, when you're doing like really massive projects. So, so uh, yeah, like for me, the thing that I couldn't necessarily relate to uh, with people was, was the math. I had to teach myself trig um, just to take a test to get into a Calc 1 class just to then, I had to ace that, straight A's with that, and take the GREs and get above a 700 in math um, just to apply for this program. And then if I got in, then I had to take all of the classes that you would take in an undergrad engineering degree. Instead of four years, I had to do it in like two. So um, it was extremely dense and the dropout rate was high. And, uh, and yeah, if you don't, if you don't get like over a three, six, um, you, you're, you fail out. So it's like very, very hard. And, uh, and I did all of it just ace, just, yeah, like. But, but Josh, you're like, of course I aced it. Of course I got a seven. Of course I got over a three six. Like that's not a. You know that's not normal. Like, do you yeah, ever give you? Are you give yourself credit for it? Like, they might be innate talents and things that you learned along the way and how you do things. But that's not. You know, I know you're extraordinary, but do you know it? Well, I appreciate that. I think that people are capable of more than they give themselves credit for. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, it's just a uh, like going back to your point about getting up in front of people and, and uh, challenging yourself and realizing that you can do it. Like, I don't think that I'm smarter or more capable than anybody else. Okay. I feel like I just work harder. So smarter, maybe also. Yeah. I mean, maybe like, uh, but a lot of times I just brute force it and, <laughs> and that I just stick with the problems longer. Um, and that has, that's made the difference. And, um, and so, yeah, like, that led me up to all kinds of all kinds of crazy stories with the engineering and stuff, but it's the engineering that really set me up for marketing where mm -hmm. I am now and right. understanding like the holes and doing like the accountability stuff. And uh, um, that's really, that's really what benefited me and separated me from all the other like marketers out there in the world. Well, also your, your whole persona and your attitude is different than most of them as well. Like for you to then, you're like, oh, I'm going to do entertainment and I'm just going to work for Justin Timberlake. But then you do. Like, I feel like that's like how you do things. Like, I, I always do them big and I always do them strong and I always do them 100%. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's, if you're going to do it, like, you know, do it right kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> I know it's easy to say that and it's it's much harder to execute that. But right. um, but it also it also lends credence to what you think is important in life, right? If you think that it's important enough to go big, um, then do it. And you'll be amazed at how many people support you and get behind you and, uh, um, and are just motivated by, by your example. That's what I've found. Oh, I, you know, I have this pod, the podcast 
as we're talking, it's launching and the amount of support that I've gotten for just putting it out there and the acknowledgement that I've gotten for the things that I just do in the way that I just am is like, you know, I've had to really step back and be like, oh, okay. You know, I do it differently. And like you, I do it more. I do it fully, not more than anybody else, but I do it more for me and, and fully for me. Um, and really hoping to be in, inspiring to other people that, you know, it really just takes a decision and effort. And I was saying last week how you, it's, make, it's making a choice. You can go sailing and, you know, play in the sand and do whatever you're doing in Key West, or you can create a live program that you do every week and put out great content and create fire builders and create funny, funnel, funny, what am I saying it wrong? What is, what is it? So close. So close. Uh, funnel, funnel happy? Mappy. Funnel mappy. Funnel I knew mappy. I was close. <laughs> I was looking at it this morning. You know, I think that some people can't get through the I don't know or the insecurity or the what if I, what if I fall and fail? What's, like, yeah. What would your advice be then to get through that part of it? Get over the fear of looking stupid. Like that's, that's honestly the best way that I found to do that. And it goes back to the... Um, it goes back to the uh, the juggling and the, mm -hmm. the stuff that I did in Chile, right? Because I, not knowing how to speak the language, but having to communicate and having to, you know, navigate school and stuff like that, I looked like a complete idiot. It was it was very embarrassing. You're mispronouncing words. I asked my host mom in front of her entire family one time where her G spot was by accident, and just everybody freaked. Like there's there's some massively embarrassing things that that happen to you. And you just have to get over the fear of looking like a fool. Mm -hmm. Once you do that, then all the doors open up. And of course, yeah, you might fall, but you're not afraid of it anymore. In fact, you see it as like every time that you fall, you fall kind of upward and you, you make some progress. Uh, that, that's what I found. So my advice is, if there, like, honestly, if there, was, if there was one thing that you could do, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit like, non-traditional but like learn a language maybe start learning how to how to speak another language even if even if you do it just a little bit a day i'm just thinking of ways that you can present yourself in front of other people with ideas that leave you vulnerable like leave you exposed to feeling like like really embarrassed because the more that you do that the more that you're going to realize that it it doesn't matter like people will never remember you as the person that that screwed up that word or, you know, mispronounced that one thing or created that product that didn't take mm -hmm. off. Like no one's going to remember that. They might remember that you're the guy that asked their host mom where her G spot was. Well, yes. That, I don't think I'll live That's down. That's different. Right? But, no, I totally agree with you. You know, I think for me, it's uh, teenagers. They, they really, you know, you mispronounce something, they're right on you. You do something wrong. You say something weird. They are, they will kick that self-esteem as far as they can but it also gives you like if you just release it and you're just you and my when my kids come at me you know for silly stuff or I'll say something I'm like just being me guys like just being mom because I, there's no excuse and there's no way to talk out talk out of it but the more that I do that the easier it is for me to show up on live to do these kind of interviews to be on tv um, I get a lot of that how how do you get to be on tv and then the next question is what do you do once you get there? And my answer is always um, be yourself. Yeah. 
Have yeah, some exactly. good words to say, but just be yourself. And that's really, Josh, what I see of you is like you were just being yourself and you just wanted to have all these different kinds of experiences. Not that you got bored, but just, you know, time passes and do different things. So you went back to school for engineering and then you worked for Justin Timberlake. Did you like hang out and party with him or you? No. It wasn't. It actually, it wasn't just him. It was like um, I worked for the entertainment industry. So, uh, you know, we're talking like designing uh, magic tricks for Chris Angel and uh, creating stuff for ACDC and uh, and Beyonce. I mean, basically, like I did a lot of stuff in Macau, um, Vegas, uh, Montreal. I mean, we did Cirque du Soleil. I designed a bunch of stuff for Cirque du Soleil. Like, like we're what? talking, like, you, like what kind of stuff? Because I don't know. If, you know, when you take engineering, like I'm not all, I'm not completely sure what you mean. That like you created actual pieces of their yeah. set or like what? So here, I'll give you an example. Like for Justin Timberlake, actually. So this is a good example. Um, so there was a project that we worked on where where these guys, Justin Timberlake's like production team, they have an idea. They sketch out this idea in their heads. Hey, we want the front of the stage to raise up like 10 feet, right? While Justin and all these dancers are on it. So we want this like 80 foot unsupported span of bridge, right? That rises up at the ends and then drives over the pit of people to the B stage that's like 100, 200 feet, you know, into the crowd, right? We want Justin to drive over these people while he's singing and dancing and all of these people. And then we want the stage to lower down onto the B stage so that he can then continue the performance like behind the pit, essentially. Okay. And, and they're like, all right, so how do we make that happen? And that's, that's where we come in where we're wow. like, okay, how do we take your dream and apply math and physics to that to actually design something to make it work and and also be modular because of course all of these major machines that are all one-offs that are all trying to outdo one another right and and just get butts in seats and be fantastic they all have to break down into trucks because they're all just trucked all over the world right um so to give you an example of the kinds of things it's not like like when i said there's no back of the book answers no one's ever done a bridge like this before and so you know one of the things that i distinctly remember that we had to do was we had to determine the natural frequency of justin timberlake's songs because if if anybody listening to this now has ever seen how bridges collapse most of the time bridges collapse because every structure every bridge has a frequency has like a vibrational frequency and if you push on that bridge at the exact frequency of the bridge itself right it will move and it'll move farther and farther and farther until it just blows itself up right that's called being in resonance well this bridge that justin and all of his dancers were going to be on they're going to be dancing to justin's songs at a specific beat per minute and if we didn't understand what that was the bridge not to be in that frequency range he could have just completely like destroyed the bridge so we had to go and listen to all of his songs and record the beats per minute and then translate that into a forcing frequency like you know that's the kind of stuff that you have to think of when when you're designing things or you're gonna you know absolutely just kill all of his uh him all of his dancers right. and all, all of his people. biggest fans <laughs> right so so it's um you know i say that in jest but we took we took all of this extremely seriously and uh, yeah, and it was just a it was just a really crazy in- intense job. It sounds like a crazy intense, but also really fulfilling because you're really you're creating something. You're being creative. You know, all those everything's working 
together and you're working in a team, it just sounds like a lot of fun, but you left that and started your own thing. Yeah, I knew, uh, I knew the office life wasn't going to be for me. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, um, right away, I started learning how to develop mobile apps and um, developed a whole bunch, three of them to be exact. Didn't know a thing about marketing. Um, that got me into the like learning about marketing. And then I got really into that because I loved the psychology of it. And I noticed that my skill set was something that people could use, right? The engineering mm -hmm. skill set applied really well to marketing. And, uh, and that's how, yeah, that's how I not only got into software, but also into helping people in this type of space, um, all online stuff. So I quit the job. I moved onto a sailboat and I've been living on a sailboat for the last like four years, North of New York city, uh, doing all of this software development and marketing stuff. Well, we all need you 100% because I know you have a few things in the works right now. I know one is Fire Builders. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? Fire Builders is awesome. It is uh, it's going to it be is awesome. It's going to be the de facto way that coaches and consultants hold their people accountable. Um, mark my words, like uh, in one year, everybody's going to be using this. It basically allows you as a coach, right, to scale your personal attention to everybody, all of your customers and clients, and continue to hold them accountable, encourage daily action, um, and do it all from your brand, your narrative. Um, and it's just, it's just incredible. Like the kinds of things, this has been in the works for like two and a half years. Uh, and it's been tested. I've had hundreds of people go through this program already, um, tested and tweaked and, and, and now it's, it's finally set up. I mean, we're just doing amazing things with it. So that's fire builders. Um, and funnel mappy, just like you were saying, you know, not a lot of people know actually what even a funnel is, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's just a visual representation of all of the steps of a customer journey as you're trying to sell them something online. And uh, funnel mappy allows you to do that and hold all of these strategic details, copywriting, graphics, uh, all the tech integrations and stuff, all in one detailed map. So, uh, so yeah, it's all stuff that I built because I needed it. And uh, it's not like I said, oh, I'm going to make millions of dollars like uh, with software. <laughs> no, I actually needed this myself. And so it's tested, it's proven, um, and it all just, it works, it works great. It does work great because I was on it this morning looking at it and I put in all of my funnel stuff and was working on it and shared it to a few friends who do customer, not customer service, but they do that customer experience. That's their, that's what they coach. So I gave it to them as well for that. Yeah, so I'm really cool, excited. Cool. So, so if somebody wanted to find you, give us all your, so it's firebuilders. Firebuilders.io. Uh, that's the, the accountability software. Funnelmappy.com. Um, right. And then the best way to find me is uh, just on, on Facebook. I've got, you know, Josh Corpel, K-O-E-R-P-E-L. And uh, on Instagram, it's uh, Saltwater CEO. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one. And I love that account and I love the photos in there. Um, and all, everything will be in the notes. Josh, thank you so much for sharing your life with us for really telling us a little bit more about your story, where you come from and how it's really just about knowing that it's okay to look bad. It's okay to look stupid. It is. Fail it up. is. Fail up. I swear to God, if you do that and try to do it just a little bit every day, man, I can't tell you how far you're going to come in just a month and then six months and a year, you'll be a completely different person. So yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure that this has been awesome.
Thanks, Josh. Okay, everybody, let's fail up and saltwater CEO on Instagram. Thanks a lot.